And so I have uh, offered myself up as the person to address the topic of giving as we come into the new year as a church family. And uh, I always wrestle with how to address this without, like, I, I want to disclose because if I'm preaching on it, I feel like I should be practicing it. But there's something awkward about disclosing, but there's also testimony to that fact. So all I'm going to say is this. Whatever I say this morning in the realm of finances, my wife and I have tried to practice faithfully. And uh, I, I will, personally, I didn't ask my wife about this, but I will personally testify to the fact that God is faithful. Uh, particularly in the last two years, in stepping out in faith and watching God provide in ways that are beyond uh, anything that I would have asked for. And uh, so I just, I want to testify to his faithfulness and I want to say that we strive to practice what I'm going to talk about. Um, Why is the topic avoided? Well, it's avoided because it's a difficult topic to talk about if you make your living in the church and you're talking about people giving to the place where you get your paycheck. It feels fundamentally self-serving. And so it's easier for me now, uh, given the change in my pay status, uh, having severely cut it, it, it's easier for me to talk about it, okay? And I want you to know that. It's difficult largely because of the abuses that have been present in the context of the church, the annoyance of the profoundly unbiblical prosperity message that is preached across this country. Pastors flying around in jets that cost $65 million doesn't help the cause of Christ. It distorts, it twists, and what it does is it casts a negative shadow over everything. I thank God for pastors like Rick Warren who write a book that has sold, it in itself is the only book that has sold let me say, it. it is second in sales to the Bible alone, historically, okay? And that man has dedicated all of the prophets to the work of God. And I, that kind of message doesn't get out there for some reason. And I thank God for people like him, for John Stott, who dedicated all of the revenue, and Josh McDonald, all these kind of guys, or McDowell, took the, what, what God blessed them with through their, their efforts. They didn't keep, they gave it to the kingdom, and that's the kind of heart that I hope we will have. So we have the issue of abuses, and the result is that people think church is all about money. Now, I can honestly say this. I have never had someone come up to me in 27 years in this church and say, this church is all about money. Uh, to a fault, I ignored a topic, and almost in a way that I would say is some way sinful, avoided talking about money because of the fear of things being about money in the context of church life. We had a lady at one time who was visiting our church, and she actually sent me an email asking how she could give to the church. And I was like, oh. Like, she should have known that, I thought. Uh, but we do it in such a quiet way because we use the box in the back because we don't want to make it a centerpiece to what we do, and yet it is part of our Christian life. The Bible says so much about this topic. So the other reason that it's difficult to preach on money then is the fear of man. Um, pastor said this to me recently. He said, yeah, it's kind of scary to get up and preach on money because you don't want people to dislike you. 
I can fall prey to that fear. I can fall prey to that fear. But I'm more afraid of not preaching God's word and fulfilling my role and the role of our pastoral team, and that is to preach the whole counsel of God. When I got out of my car this morning, I saw Jim Argandizel in the parking lot. He is one of the most respectful men I know. And I said, hi, Jim, and he yelled over to me, hi, pastor. I thought, okay, what's that mean? And I know what he means. That God has given those in leadership in the church the responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God. That when it comes to finances and money, possessions, we as leaders have a God-given responsibility to talk to the topic, not to avoid it for fear of people and for fear of being labeled abusive in that regard. And I think if we stay biblical, we will not struggle in understanding how we need to respond to this topic. Is the topic important? Why should we preach on it? Here's the thing I'm thankful for this morning as I talk to you. I'm thankful that our giving in the last three to four months, as a result of a couple changes, and then I think just the heart of God coming on people, our giving has increased somewhat healthily. Is that, I don't know if that's a word or not, but... God has started to bless that. The online giving has created some stability in our giving. And that's, that's great. So I, I, I'm not here this morning to, to make, I don't want you to leave feeling guilty. I want you to be, be driven by gratitude and love for Christ. At the end of the day, we're going to see that it is the cross of Christ that prompts generosity in the context of church life. And I want to see God begin to do that where there's a freedom, a, that we would all be liberal not a word that I attach to myself regularly, but that liberality is to be generous. It is to be giving. It is to see needs and meet needs. That's what a liberal does. And so God wants us to be generous, to be liberal in a relationship to resources. And the reason I think it's important is not because our giving is going down. It's not. It's going up. But we have before us as a church family great God-given opportunities. The scope of them, I don't know them. I know that God is putting on people's hearts to increase the size of the auditorium, which I personally have fought, and then I've yielded. Okay? Like, I'm not going to fight it anymore. Okay? If God wants to do something that's beyond what I understand, so be it. But he's not going to do it without our assistance. He resources his people and he wants us to loosen our grip on what we have so that his work can go forward. And I'll tell you this, there will be no greater joy in your heart as a Christian than to see the work of God expanding and people moving into the kingdom of God, coming to know Christ. It will be the greatest joy, better than every movie ticket you could ever purchase. That's for you Star Wars fans. The other reason it's important is because God is fundamentally a giver. The verse that all of us know is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. And folks, here's what the people of God do, the children of God do. They imitate their father and they give and they give and they give. They give in ways that are sacrificial, that are selfless to meet the needs of those around them. God is generous and he calls his people to be generous people. And in order for us to be a biblical church, we have to be full orbed in our teaching from scripture. And part of what scripture teaches about more than heaven and more about hell combined, it talks about our relationship to resources and how we use the money that God gives to us to advance the cause 
that is more important than anything else. This is part of my shepherding responsibilities as a pastor in this church, is to teach the whole counsel of God. And I, I, I approach topics like this with a pretty positive outlook. I tend to be fairly optimistic in my outlook. I ask this question when I talk about things like this to myself. What if? What if? What would happen if the people of the Chapel of Warren Valley surrendered to what they understand to be biblical teaching about their relationship to their resources? What would happen? What if we were a church where we could say, we, the people in this church are so generous. We would be looking for opportunities, not for money. That would be a beautiful day in the body of Christ. But people are wondering what we can do with the resources that God is blessing with. I long for that day. And I believe it can happen. If God's, under, if God's people understood and gave biblically, freely, and generously, what if? What if? 2 Corinthians 8 is a story about churches in a place called Macedonia. It's a story about a church that had an unbelievable gift of giving. And that gift came from God. And this is the thought that has probably penetrated my heart out of this text this time around more than any other aspect of it. This idea of the grace that God has given. Look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 8. It says, now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And then he's going to go into a discussion about giving. So the grace that God has given, the energy, the power, the blessing is a blessing to be generous to others. He says, I want you to know about it. Get down to verse 7. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech. This is the idea of God speaking in the context of church life. As you excel in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And that phrase just is kind of stuck in my mind. This grace of giving is, in a sense, an, an explanation or a definition of a generous heart, a, a free giving, like God gives to us. And if we let this truth of the gospel settle in, I think we will find a transformation in our relationship to resources. This story, then, that Paul is sharing has an aim. The aim of sharing this story from verses 1 through 6 is to get to verse 7 where he's going to say to the church, remember this story and when you give, give like this story. Let the grace of God that is settled in Macedonia settle in your sphere of influence and watch what God will do in this grace of giving. So that giving is not compulsory. It's not mandated. In fact, Paul's going to say in this text, I am not commanding you. Not, that frustrated me. Because <laughs> I like lists. I like specific details about everything, especially about giving. It'd be easy. God says, do this, do this. If you're not doing this, you're sinning. Confess and give. That'd be an easy sermon. And God doesn't let it like that. Because God isn't about commanding you to give. God is about motivating you to give through the grace that he pours out into your life. And that's where I want our focus to go this morning. My desire is that we would look at this text and come away saying, God, give me the grace of generosity. Let that begin to flow through my heart. I looked up generosity. You want to find a frustrating word to try to define. Here it is. It says, someone showing generosity is one who is happy to give or to share time, money, food, or whatever. The definition, it, it, you struggle. I was looking for an interesting definition. It simply is this. 
synonymous with the idea of unselfishness. It's an open-handedness. It's a freeness. It's grace that is amazing and liberating. And the purpose of the story as it is shared in verse 8 is, I am not commanding you, notice what he says, but I do want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, for you know the grace of our Lord. And then he's going to go into, into a brief description of the gospel. So Paul's purpose in sharing the generosity of the churches in Macedonia is so that we would lay our giving life against their giving life and look for similarities, or if we see dissimilarity, make adjustments in how we're relating to this realm of resources. We deal with it every day. And so I want us to challenge our hearts from this text by the work of the Spirit of God to test our own generosity in giving by comparing it to this church that Paul selected under the inspiration of the Spirit to be an example of giving to the church in Corinth. So let me make these observations about giving. Most of them are from the text. The first one is kind of an overview in terms of an understanding of the broader teachings of Scripture in relationship to generosity. Generosity or giving is a priority for God's people throughout the Scripture. The way I would describe it is this. It, it, it is, it is a, a, an activity for the church and for the people of God throughout the history of the Bible that is habitual. It's something that's happening on a recurring basis. In the Old Testament times, in, a, in an agricultural society, it was typically tied to harvest. When the money was coming in, generosity would increase. People would go to temple and contribute out of their God-given resources. In the New Testament, you find that it's the pattern of something that happens on the first day of the week, okay, which we know is Sunday, Resurrection Day. So in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, and I'll just read this to you real quickly. Um, I put my post-it note in the wrong place, just realizing. I should probably go and look and see what that verse is. Okay, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 16, it says, On the first day of the week... Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have, have to be made. So there is this regularity, this priority of giving that emerges as you go through the Old Testament and as you move into the New Testament. Giving is part of what the people of God do. They are marked by generosity, as is the heart of God. Now, secondly... Giving in this text has an intensely personal characteristic to it. I want to just read a couple verses from 2 Corinthians 8 to help you to kind of grasp this. Look at verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 8. By the way, if you see me struggling, it's just because I'm trying to see the text, okay? So I just, I can't do it with glasses yet. It's not a pride thing, I promise. It's just, so if you see me focusing, hang in there a second. Halfway through verse 3, it says this. It says, entirely on their own, they, the church in Macedonia, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. As a pastor, I haven't had, well, that's rare. When someone comes and says, we have been so blessed, who can we help? And that's what was going here on here. But here it's urgent pleading. They are begging for the opportunity to take the resources that God has given them to distribute it, to meet the needs of others in the context of church life. 
Now, here's the principle I would get from that. It's intensely personal. God wants you before he wants your money. Because the danger is, if you give money to God before you give yourself to God, you will begin to believe that God owes you, and it is no longer grace. It is debt. And God can never owe you. Because everything you have, fundamentally and first, came from him. And when that settles in, we understand this is really an issue of ownership. Who owns what I have? Well, God does. And he distributes to us so that we can be stewards of his resources to bless the work that he has called us to do. And I would say this is at the heart of our worship. They first gave themselves to God and then to us by their giving. Look down at verse 12 real quickly. It says this. It says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what, not to what one according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. And so here's the focus. It's intensely personal. It flows out of a willingness of heart. That's the nature of biblical giving. So it is an intensely heart-driven personal relationship with God that yields to generosity. The other thing I notice in verses 10 through 12 is this. This giving, because you have to think about this, when should we give? And I think the biblical answer to that would be, we should give when we receive. We should give when we receive. It is proportionate in nature. Okay? And that's what Paul, according to what one has or has received on the first day of the week, take a portion of that. Set it aside for the work of what God is doing in your sphere of influence. And so this text in verses 10 to 12 talks about this aspect of proportionate giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says it should be in keeping with his income. It's the way it says it. Okay, so there's, there's this idea of a proportion of what I get goes to the work that God is doing so that we together carry this ball forward as a church family. Generosity is never defined by the amount that is given. Okay, and I want to be clear on this. I realize there are folks within our church family. We have a lot of ladies in our church that, who, whose husbands don't come, and they struggle with desiring to give. And they are only able to give so much because of that circumstance. They need to honor God with that in that relationship. And be respectful in that situation, in their home. Jesus points to the widow who puts in two mites, two mites and says she is an example of generosity. He was not amazed by the amount. It was two pennies. He was amazed by the heart. And folks, when Jesus points to her, he's pointing to a woman who had sacrificed for the work of God to be advanced. Now, let me, let me just address the elephant in the room about giving. The elephant in the room about giving is, does the Bible teach tithing? The answer is un, unabashedly yes. Does it in the New Testament command tithing? You can read through this text. Paul says, I am not Verse 8, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. You know what Paul's saying is? Throw away your calculator. Throw away the need for regulations. And let the love of God so fill your heart that every time you give, it is a response to the greater blessings of God. This grace giving that is so affecting you that it causes you to become more liberal and you have to go to your mate or your friends. I, I'm thinking about doing this. 
Because you're kind of amazed that God put that on your heart. To be so generous to what he is seeking to accomplish. Am I commanded to give a percentage of my resources to God? In the New Testament, am I commanded to give a specific percentage? My answer would be no. If you said to me, does the Bible seem to establish a pattern in terms of percentage of giving prior to the giving of the law in the Old Testament? The answer is unequivocally yes. The tithe seems to be a pattern that is established throughout Scripture. Here's what I I would argue. I don't know any church in America that wouldn't be in a totally different place, any work of God in America that wouldn't be in a totally different place financially if the church would simply tithe. That's my, if you said to me, Tim, what is your conviction? What do you do? And I'm going to tell you what we do. All right, we have tithed. That's a commitment we made early on, not because of what we would get from it. Because honestly, it hasn't worked out well in that regard. Okay, but the motivation has to be because we believe it is what God wants. So I'm going to say to you what Paul says. I am not commanding you. I refuse to cross that line. But if you said to me, what is the pattern biblically of giving? I would have to tell you, it seems to be this idea of a tithe, which simply means a tenth. Could my wife and I drive an extra car if we didn't tithe? The answer is unequivocally, yes. Could we improve our lifestyle? Yes. Do we need to? No. Had a conversation with a young man recently. He made a statement to me that it caught me completely off guard. Couple that's doing well. He said, we earn more than we need. Folks, listen, I am 55 years old. I have never had someone say that to me. I thought, what a mature, liberating perspective. We live in a culture that's drowning in debt because we never realize that many of us earn more than we need. The problem is that we increase our lifestyle along with the increase in our paycheck and we live in perpetual debt. And here's what Proverbs says. And, and if this is where you are, you're going to deal with this with God and make adjustments in your life. Proverbs says the borrower is slave to the lender. And Jesus will later pick up on that theme and say you cannot serve God fully and mammon simultaneously can't so if every time there's an increase in income and you think about what you can do with it to aggrandize your life for you and yours you're not thinking properly about your finances the one thing i can tell you from the text is it is clearly going down a road that is about proportion in accordance with what one receives what's the only percentage that's ever given in the bible in relationship to giving it's the tithe it's the only one that's ever there now i'm not commanding you but I'm going to tell you firmly that that is the biblical truth. And now you've got to wrestle with that with God, not out of guilt. Guilt will never produce generosity. It will produce obligation, rigidity, calculation. Jesus thought this was so important that he would say something like this. He would say, where your treasure is, that's where you find your heart. What's sad about that to me is this. I, I grew up in a context... I didn't grow, all of you think I grew up in a wealthy family because you know where my dad is today, okay? This is another elephant in the room. I grew up with a dad who struggled to pay his bills until I moved here. 
But when he sold his business and retired, still had debt. Okay, that's, that's where I come from. He's very blessed. Okay? But I grew up around someone that gave. And I saw the blessing of God sustaining in the most amazing circumstances. I want that for our church family. I want us to have testimonies on our lips that God has given me more than I need. What do I do? Read the text. Find someone you can bless for the glory of God in the name of Christ. And as often as possible, do it anonymously. Find a way to get it done. And you will find that in grace giving, there's a joy that begins to emerge. So this giving is to be proportionate. I learned this when I was a youngster. I was, uh, I think, 12 years old when I got my first job. I worked on an egg farm where we had to go rescue brown eggs from underneath of brown chickens. And the only word I can use to describe it is pain. Chickens don't like to give up their eggs, especially when you have to, you have to push them off the eggs and then grab them. They don't kiss your hand. They pierce it. I remember I, I earned $1.10, okay? To the, it, I thought of that this morning. I was like, holy cow, I'm getting old. $1.10. And I remember getting my first money, my money that I had earned. And coming home and having my mom tell me that it was not my money. That I had a God-given obligation with everything I got to honor God. She forced me to save my money. She forced me to give my money. And she affected, honestly, the trajectory of my life in relationship to resources. I didn't have to get used to it when I was 30. And perhaps you're here and you're newer in Christ and you're saying, holy cow, 10%. You're one of them. <laughs> you're going to be on TV soon probably. <laughs> no, it's just, if you say to me, what's the biblical pattern? It's all I can tell you. And I can't reduce it. I can't change it. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of loving God and saying, God, how do you want us to move with this? It's always proportionate. The other thing I want to say is that this giving in this text is part of body life. The word they, I went through and circled it. I didn't count how many times it shows up, but I can tell you this. When Paul talks about the church in Macedonia, he is not talking about individuals. He's talking about church life. And when he's challenging the church in Corinth with the example of the church in Macedonia, he talks about you in the plural, not in the singular. And what does that mean? It means that we have a, something that I would say is, is, is in some ways detrimental in the church in America. We're individualistic as a country, aren't we? We're fiercely individual. We love our freedoms and we want to protect them because we're good Christians and that's what Christians do. I'm being facetious. Okay, our problem is that we tend to take our giving to be a personal issue also in terms of directing it. And here's the thing I want to, ch I want to challenge you with the thought that most of the giving that is recorded in Scripture tends to be body-driven meaning body of Christ. I, here's what I believe. Okay, I believe my regular giving should be to what God is doing through the local church. And I believe that is the direction of this text. And I could take you to a number of others in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was temple, the work that God was doing. And charity flowed out of that. 
I, I was talking to my son-in-law recently, and uh, down at, lives in Houston. He was saying their church had raised thirty-five thousand dollars to give away through social organizations in their town, in the name of Christ. He told his church a few weeks ago, he says, I want to do that again because he says, when I get down to the local, and I forget what organization it was, let's say it's a Habitat for Humanity, he says, I am like a rock star there because everybody is amazed at the generosity that is flowing from that church. And they made an intentional decision. Let's give in the name of Jesus as a body to our community and watch what happens. I love that. I love that. Giving is to be part of body life. Verse 13, I want you to follow this. After Paul talks about it and calls them, verse 13, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there may be equality in terms of this idea of generosity. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Folks, listen, the idea of giving in terms of proportionality is so that we would together as the body of Christ begin to affect what God wants to do through this church. And it's something we do corporately. We are not solo saints or as one writer called it, pious particles trying to live for God independently. We are bound together in every way. And so in 1 Corinthians 16, they came together on the first day of the week and they gave on the first day of the week. It was part of body life. And we need to get that back in an individualistic culture where people shop church for what they want and for what they get. We need to come back to understanding the church is about what I receive and what I give at every level. And I want to say this, ultimately, ultimately giving is a trust thing. More than anything else, it is an issue of faith. Because when we consider giving, we're asking questions like this. If I give this, will I be, have enough still to be happy? Will I still have enough to be secure? Will I still have enough to meet my needs? And it's interesting that God promises to meet your needs and then says, be generous and leave the results with him. That's what he calls the church to do. And I'm grateful that I don't have to add anything to that. In verses 10 and 11, and I'll just read this to you now. Paul says, and here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. So the desire is preceding. There's a gratitude that's welling up in the heart of a born-again believer who is so grateful for Christ and grateful for the blessings of God that something, this desire is welling up. And then Paul says this, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion according to your means. There's proportionality and it's not grudging. It's, there's a natural flow. When you see the blessing of God and you begin to jump into that river, you will begin to experience something that is glorious. But it's a trust thing. Israel was taught this in the Old Testament. Their giving at harvest was always called first fruits. It was the prioritizing of giving. The first product went to God. And it was given in hope that the fullness of the harvest would come by the hand of God. And if you let that, let that settle in. When you are blessed with resources, what's your first thought? What are you teaching your child to do when they get that gift from grandma or grandpa? Do you interject? Think about 
Do you call on their heart? Do you cultivate their heart? And may I be blunt? If you have not cultivated a generous heart, I can guarantee you, you haven't done it with your kids, probably. And if you have, it's been fundamentally hypocritical. The reason we don't give like we should is because we don't trust God. And that's an issue I have to take up with God. That is an intensely personal heart issue that I've got to wrestle with and say, God, give me the grace of giving. And here's what I think is so cool. When this idea of grace is mentioned in the Bible, it's always the bestowment of God's blessing that is enabling something else in your life. This grace of giving that God poured and pressed upon the church so much that they became so grateful that they became generous. That's where I want to live. That's where I want to live. I thought of this last week at Bev Scott's funeral. A woman that lived for God. It was clear. I thought about wealthy people that I know. And I thought all the discussion about Bev was in the past tense. She was. And and that's all true. And in Christ she is. I thought one day I... It will be said of me, he was. Whatever. He was rich. He was a good dad. He, it's all past tense. For some reason, that thought has settled into my mind that we need to be intense about the moment that God has given us as a church family. And he's given us a beautiful opportunity to make a difference in this community. And I, my heart prayer is that we would... We even embrace it. And so my what-if question kind of moves in conclusion towards the discussion I had at Chick-fil-A on Friday night. I was in the restaurant with my parents. We were going to see a movie, my wife and I and my parents. And a man walked up to me. Actually, I saw him, and I knew him, so I was like, okay, I better go over. I should go over and say hi because that's what pastors do. Felt a little bit obligatory, to be honest, Okay. And he said, oh, I heard you bought the ShopRite building. This guy that used to be a banker in town. I said, yeah. And we have, we have mutual friends that come to our church. And uh, he started asking about it. There was an excitement. He wants to come and visit when we get in the building. You see, because for most people, it's about the building. <laughs> we know the building is about getting people to know God. There's a buzz out there. And here's, here's the thought that ran through my mind as a result. Because I, you know, I said, financially, it's going to be very challenging for us as a church family. And as an elder board, we've talked about finances and giving. And should, should we do like a, a, a campaign? Should we give people an opportunity to give generously to the building fund? There's a lot of new people in our church who weren't around when we did our first run. Should we do that? And, and we, should we take up the offering in church? And what should we do? And here's a thought that's in my mind, honestly. If we corporately as a church body agreed to follow simple biblical guidelines on giving, I don't think the elder board would be having that discussion. I don't think we'd have to talk about fundraising. I think we'd be talking about what are we going to do with the blessings that God has given. So the question that I kind of come to is what, what if? 
You let God begin to speak to your heart through biblical truth about your relationship with your resources. And you started to say, God, I want over the next six months or over the next three months or sooner, I, and hopefully you'll start today, I want to begin to walk in a biblical fashion in relationship to my stuff because I fear the direction my heart has been going in. I don't want to be ruled by the love of money. Folks, money is not the root of all evil. Affection for it is deadly. It's deadly. And I have watched that from pretty close by. It's devastating. And so I want to challenge you to embrace the biblical pattern. But I want you to be motivated by what matters most. And I'll end here and we'll go into communion. Giving is best when it is driven by gratitude for the gospel. Giving happens best when it is driven by gratitude for the gospel. Here's what Paul says in verse 9. And I'll tie 8 to it. He says, I'm not commanding you. I don't have to. But I do want to test the sincerity of your love for the church and for Christ. How? Paul, by comparing it with the earnestness of others, people that have been lit aflame with this idea of grace giving. I want to compare you to them, and I want you to alter your life in light of this positive example and model. I want your life to be shaped around this image. For you know, and this is what I love, Paul's like, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your benefit and advantage... He became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Folks, nothing thrills and encourages my heart like singing the gospel. Nothing. We have a grandchild coming. I'm real excited about that. But nothing excites my heart like singing the gospel. And Paul sucker punches him here. In the best of ways, he draws on what should prompt biblical generosity. And that is an understanding of what Christ did for you. You know what he did? He impoverished himself. He gave what he had because he didn't need any money. He didn't even need a pill to lay his head. He came for a purpose. That was not to establish a kingdom here, but to die to receive people into his kingdom. And Paul looks at that example. Church in Macedonia, be like them. Jesus, be like him. Who, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that we through his giving might be rich. Folks, I can testify, I am rich in the grace of God. I am. I am blessed by the blood of Christ. I have been forgiven of many transgressions. By a Savior who impoverished himself so that I could be a rich son of God. And if you don't know him this morning, I want to encourage you. Do not give until you know the Savior. Okay? Don't give until you know the Savior. Because then your giving will be informed from the heart to the work of God. If you're visiting, here's what we kind of say. Come to church, leave your wallet at home. We don't want your money, and we should never need your money. We'd rather that you know the Savior, that you receive a deposit that is generous of grace so that you can begin to enjoy 
the grace of giving. Father, help us. Help us to listen to the Spirit, to meditate on these simple truths that somewhat in a random sort of way I've presented this morning by the help of your Spirit. God, make us generous. Let us be a church known for its generosity, that this gift, this grace gift by the Spirit would flow into this church family so that we don't have to do special fundraising, but so that the work of God will be well-sponsored by the people of God for the glory of God, so that the name of Christ will go in this community and then into our state and into our world the resources that are given by your people. And God, for those here this morning who have been wrestling, perhaps even feel a prompt from the Spirit of God about giving, you may simply need to say, God, I, maybe it's ignorance. Maybe you just didn't know. The purpose of God's word is to give light. I would encourage you just as you pray this morning, yield to him. Look at the cross and find all the motivation you could ever need to be a generous person so that we might become a generous church for the glory of God in Washington and beyond. So God, now bless as we reflect, as we contemplate in our hearts these two elements that symbolize broken body, shed blood, and forgiveness. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who does not know Jesus, I hope they would realize it is about them receiving, not giving. And that today they would freely receive the forgiveness of God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who came for their rescue. Challenge our hearts, God. Whatever it is in our hearts that we need to confess, give us courage to boldly own it and then eat of this bread and drink of that cup. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.